You're listening to Conversation with the Experts, a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. Hello, my name is Steve Lacey and I'm the Allied Health Education Fellow in the RCH Education Hub. I also work as the Tutor Radiographer in Medical Imaging at RCH. Whilst the changing behaviours of patients in hospital can be caused by any number of reasons, one of these of course is due to dissatisfaction. This also occurs in some children when they are in hospital and can often be well misunderstood as to why it occurs and how it's managed. Now, children can't properly articulate their feelings to give us a sense of how something is affecting them, and so they turn to behavioural changes. So to talk more about this, we are joined today by two guests from the RCH Code Grey team, and we'll go through what Code Grey is uh, at some point during the podcast. Our first uh, guest is Christy Mitchell. Christy is on the Code Grey team at RCH with a background in mental health nursing. Welcome, Christy. Thank you. And our second guest is Kathy Dowsey. Kathy has a background in adolescent nursing and is currently working as a hospital manager and Code Grey coordinator. Welcome, Kathy. Hi, Steve. Thank you. For the listeners, I want you to think about what comes to your mind when you think of paediatric behaviours. And now for Christy and for Kathy, let's talk about what our listeners may be thinking right now. What are some of the myths around paediatric behaviours? So some of the things that you've heard? Well, I think what jumps to mind is there wouldn't be behavioural problems in a paediatric setting. Yep. Code grey or violence and aggression is something you'd see in an adult hospital. Both of those are myths. Right. but And so in kids, it's just like, this is just how kids behave all the time, like situation. Yeah. Or that things are under control all the time for kids. Yep. Okay. Or that kids can do what um, adults can do, like tiny adults rather than being paediatrics. So therefore, they're expected to move when we need them to move and talk when we need them to talk. Yeah, that sounds very archaic to me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of other myths, but let's look now at reality. So Christy, why the changes in behaviour? What is going on for the child? I think there's always a range of things that could be going on for the children and adolescents that we work with. We know that behaviour is communication and we don't always have the language required to tell people how we're feeling. Mm -hmm. And hospital is an artificial environment for most of our families that come here. So I guess one of the things that we need to be interested about or curious about is what are they trying to tell us and what are they worried about? Because if they can't around and say, I'm really scared about this, then they're going to have to show us. Yeah. So it's how we set up our sessions. It's how we set up our procedures. It's how we're communicating from the beginning to allow them to communicate and feel safe communicating with us and how we might go about it. So usually it's because they don't know how to tell us verbally and we expect a lot of verbal responses from our young people. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we just expect verbal responses from our patients in general. You know, you ask them a question, you get a verbal response. Absolutely. And we expect them to give us a polite response back sometimes too, because we're here to help them. Yeah. So obviously they should be receptive to our help. Yeah. It's like, yeah, don't you realize I'm here to (laughs) help? Exactly. I I work here. I'm obviously a good person. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's an interesting point. And, And I think the other thing I think is that even just working in a clinical environment and you're meeting a child for the first time and you might ask them some very personal questions, like it might be, be even things like, what is your address? What is your, what is your date of birth? Yeah. And they have been, had instilled in them for, for years, don't tell anyone where you live. Don't tell yeah. anyone where you live. It's a stranger. Don't tell anyone where you live. And I've actually had 
like kids actually look up at their parents and their parents gone, it's okay. This is someone you can tell where you live. So, yeah. yeah. And I think also why are we asking them mm. as well? Some, some people that we work with have had so many negative experiences in the hospital setting and they answer these questions all the time. Mm. And so what are we preambling? What's our preamble with them? Yeah. My job is to do this. And if we need to change the plan, this is what I will let you know. Sometimes we do it because we're so used to it mm. or we're rushed yeah. as clinicians. We're so time poor too yeah. that sometimes that socialising or that rapport building at the start will help a child or an adolescent feel safe mm-hmm. because we do have an obligation to help them feel safe when they come into the hospital. It's not just expected because we are a paediatric hospital that you're safe. Yeah. They don't know that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's not explicit, is it? Mm, absolutely. Now we're going to talk more about code grays later in the podcast, but what we really want to avoid is a code gray situation, right? Ideally. Ideally. (laughs) Ideally, we would like every child, visitor, family in the hospital or in the ambulatory space or in their home that's having RCH care to be straightforward, efficient, Etc. But we know that that's not always the case because babies, children, families are unique. They're different. They're diverse. And uh, putting families in a stressful situation, a stressful environment, mm. might change their range of emotions. They've all got a story before engaging with the hospital, and all of those things can affect how their uh, their feelings or emotions might be expressed in the hospital. Yeah. So uh, we all know that what happens in everybody's house is very diverse. And so bring all that diversity into the hospital and we have KPIs, we have uh, services that need to run on time. We have an idea in our head how we want programs to work, how long a consult should go. And so I guess when you've got uh, a range of different kids coming into the hospital you never know how they're going to react or how they're going to behave or the emotion that they're going to feel. So I guess this is a good opportunity to talk about um, emotion and feelings and how they're very normal. Mm. But our team comes in or code grade comes in when that emotion might turn into a behaviour that escalates when they're unable to contain their emotion or contain their behaviour or their reaction to something happening within the hospital. Right. How then can we try to avoid that escalation of, of behaviour that may eventually fall into a code grey situation? I think understanding developmentally, developmental ages and stages, and also uh, the complexities around neurodiversity, complexities around uh, things that might affect a family. So family violence, previous trauma, previous hospital experience, the classic of service expectation and we see that mirrored in many, many areas, not just in healthcare. Mm. So at the supermarket, at a doctor's surgery, on the airline, and it's exactly the same in a hospital. So we work closely with other paediatric hospitals around Australia and internationally, and they're also seeing an increased incident of OVA or occupational violence and aggression in children, young people, adolescents, visitors, and parents. Right. I'm assuming COVID's not the only reason this is happening. No, we certainly saw an increase in incidences or of of families in stressful situations who needed our support. However, 
even prior to COVID, there was uh, an increase in families requiring support in this space. Yeah. And I think it's also if they're feeling scared and frightened when they come in or something is happening that is scary and frightening, they'll flip their lid. So mm. their brain actually turns offline and they're running on their amygdala, so their fight, flight mm. response. Mm. And that's also really hard because the only thing that can really help in those moments is time. And what don't we have in a hospital? Like it's really hard to give more time because of our clinical demands and where we're at yeah, and what the patient might need as well. Yeah. And, and I think we also need to be very careful about that fight and flight kind of response to make sure that they do that they are able to do something within that point because if we do kind of get them to the point where they ha- where you know their body's saying fight or flight and they're not actually able to do either yeah then that can actually have some very dire consequences itself right absolutely and these experiences will shape their future interactions with hospital and healthcare mm. as well yeah and so it is tricky and whilst we want to see a reduction in occupational violence and aggression or OVA um, and that means uh, a variety of different uh, things. We also want to look at Code Grey as an escalation of care. So similar to a Met call where a, an independent team comes and helps uh, around, it might be a parameter that's outside of a standard or a concern or worry, Code Grey could be viewed like that. So we can be called when there's a concern or worry about behaviour. So we might say that an increase in Code Greys might reflect a workforce that's uh, identifying uh, children and families who need extra support or identifying risk early rather than it being the dreaded last resort of, mm. of, of us coming in to, to rescue yeah. a stressful situation. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's go on to Code Greys and what that actually means because some of our listeners won't use the term Code Grey um, because they're outside of the state of Victoria. But here in the state of Victoria, what is the def- definition of a code grey? And in the context of RCH, how is this different from other parts of the state of Victoria? A code grey, as per our emergency response, is verbal aggression mm-hmm. or um, aggression without a weapon um, is how it's kind of summarised. We also have a term here called planned code greys, which is a, like a paged. So the code grey response team will get a page. Yeah. about a planned code grey. Yeah. So it's any unarmed aggression is overall, but we also use planned code greys for potential aggression. Yeah, so it might be a, a situation or something like where you're about to do a procedure and you know that this, this is a, a triggering moment, I yeah. guess. Yeah, or there's potential for them to decompensate mm. and so we need extra support. Yeah. Um, or we're going to have a challenging conversation with a family and we need extra support. So we might not even be seen. We might just be around to support staff in managing that risk or if there is potential risk as well. Yeah. Another example might be uh, supporting nutritional feeds in someone who is unable to get through a treatment plan for a diagnosis of an eating disorder. Okay. There's fairly strict legalities around supporting that treatment and it needs to be absolutely necessary Another example of a code grey, as Christy mentioned, might be a family with a known history of family violence and they may have something, a diagnosis or something that the medical team need to deliver. And we know that that will be a a stressful trigger, as you mentioned, and our team might be involved in pre-planning the best location for that news to be delivered. 
the best uh, language to use to help parents with changed capacity mm. have a particular visual cues or simplified language. It might also be that the presence of security actually support that parent who might be known to the team. So they're examples of planned code greys. Examples of code greys that we hear overhead might be an immediate threat. So it might be a parent who's escalated and is yelling and verbally abusing staff, or it might be a patient who becomes, as Christy says, decompensates and they start picking up chairs and throwing items. And that's a a totally different sort of safety containment uh, response that our team would have. So we're often a, pa- a passive team who can who are present for mm. uh, dynamic risk assessment, and we can also be an active team, highly skilled in containing quite dangerous situations. Yeah, yeah, okay. One of the things that we do when we work in a role, particularly in healthcare, is at times we might um, put our own safety at risk because we are there to work with the child or the young person, but being able to support safety for all, I think, is something that we think is really important in our role. Yeah. So staff, families and the child at that point in time. And there's no shame in asking for help. I've had scenarios where I'm unable to de-escalate a young person mm. and, and we all need help. There's no no script. Every child is different. Every family is different. And, and different yeah. strokes for different folks. Yeah, yeah that's uh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, also our role is, you know, we, we're faced with, you know, repetitive exposure and that's where the team comes in and I guess finding out who the child and family's ally is, you know, who is the best person to support this scenario, Mm. who is the best person to address the behaviours of concern or are they behaviours that are very much in context of the child and family's experience. Um, A good example of that is putting a child on an emergency surgical list from the emergency department and one clinician says it won't be long you're next on the list three days later due to traumas Mm. the way of the health system staff COVID outbreak three days later they're still waiting so have we explained how the system works when parents walk through the door have we explained what's what it's going to look like what we can do in the meantime etc have we understood the child and adolescent and their particular needs from a behavioral support point of view what are their protective factors? What are their mm. risk factors? And sometimes we skip that in the process and then we're sort of left with the aftermath of um, a system that we could have perhaps improved from the moment they hit mm. in the hospital. It's kind so, of like the snowball, isn't it? Like the yeah. thing that happens and then it just gets bigger and bigger until it crashes at the end. Yeah. That's where it gets tricky. Because it may not be it may not be that one thing that you kind of talk like you know yeah. it, it may not be necessarily that delay of going to surgery and it's three days later or whatever and that it may be in the, on the third day when all of a sudden it's being delayed again that all of a sudden it's just like okay now it's that that's enough yeah. like the straw and that broke the camel's back yeah absolutely and you think being in a hospital as a parent uh, I, I'm not a parent but I can only imagine how stressful it would be yeah like your child is sick and then feeling like they're not you know, mm. in their mind, being prioritised and they're sick, that would be heartbreaking yeah. and really challenging. Yeah. So I guess we kind of have to hold their empathy alongside the safety. Yeah. And I think that's something that is tricky to do, particularly if you're feeling frightened or unsafe in an environment. It's really hard to still be empathetic but firm in how you do that too. Mm. And realistic in yeah. your communication <laughs> about how it's going to look. And there's no staff guilty of making a child or parents or family stay 
miserable. Absolutely. <laughs> However, good. we've got the constraints of how our system works yeah. and, um, you know, think about how many clinicians or staff that families come across in their stay. You know, do we explain to them what is a resident? What is a registrar? What does a nursing shift look like? Who will be looking after you? How how often are we going to be doing your observations? How long do you have to fast for? And then if we cancel your surgery, what's going to happen then? So, and it's not all doom and gloom. Sometimes we get it, you know, perfect. (laughs) Yeah, I reckon we do sometimes. That's good. That's good. (laughs) And prevention is the way to go. So to prevent a code grey for, you know, those who have previous risk factors, we know that that's a huge indicator for violence and aggression in the hospital. Mm And it's not a stereotyping families. However, we do know that particular risk factors uh, may increase the chance of violence and aggression in the hospital. And we think about all the different ways people come into the hospital. And like Kathy said, in terms of we don't know what their home life is like, some people are kind of programmed to try and reject us first. Mm. And sometimes as clinicians or if we're busy, we might avoid some of that, like noticing that they're not feeling great. And so they need to show us that they need to be cared for through their behaviour because we're not stepping into it and be like, oh, hang on, are you okay? What's happening today? Mm, what mm. can we do right now? Yeah, Those conversations can do uh, um, wonders in terms of prevention. So I can see that, you know, you might get a bit annoyed. What can we do if you get annoyed? What's helpful for you? Yeah. And what would we notice? Yeah. So they having autonomy in their decision-making and in their care and telling us what they need from us before they flip their lid mm. and they're offline. Because other, I guess otherwise you, you're, you're kind of treading on thin ice, oh. not knowing what the, what the real trigger is and what it's not. I guess by having that conversation beforehand and really the communication thing, which is kind of what I was going to say before, was just that it's, it's really about communicating, I think, to kind yes. of try to prevent that as much as you can. The more you communicate, the, the thicker that ice gets, I guess, really, isn't it? Absolutely. And being realistic, like Kathy said, like not setting people up to fail. Yeah. Like, oh, actually, that's not a Christie decision. Mm, mm. I can't make that decision, but this is what I can do. Yeah. Um, so being really clear of what we're able to do versus yeah. what we're not able to do, yeah. rather than leave it a bit murky. Mm, mm. Another good example, Christy, is um, uh, a, a parent, for example, might say, but I wasn't yelling. That's how I talk. And so if you grew up with yelling or loud voices in your house, that might be quite normal. If you've never heard someone yell, that could be really, really frightening. So that's the same as staff. Staff come to the hospital with their own experiences or their own triggers around family violence or people yelling or how people communicate. So when you put, you know, complex families with with staff, um, you've got, uh, you know, a multitude of different experiences. So what might be what happened in Christie's house might be quite different to my house. Mm. And so yelling to somebody might not be yelling to somebody else. Mm, mm. Yeah. yeah. About the, the level of tolerance, I think as well. And that comes back to that curiosity, isn't it? Like if we're not curious about what's going on and that will create a different experience, I yeah. think too, if we go in assuming that it's terrible and it sometimes it might be, so a good judgment call, but about being curious about, oh, I wonder what's going on. Is there something I can help you with mm, today? Mm. What percentage do you think of uh, are there in terms of planned versus unplanned co-grades yeah. in, in the hospital here? I would say that we are doing really well this year in particular in our planned code grades. I would say that at least 60% would be planned mm-hmm. 
roughly 40% unplanned. Yeah. And what do you think, Kathy? Yeah, about and, that? and doing well, just to clarify, might mean earlier identification yep. of potential violence and aggression or actual. Yes, you don't want to use the percentage as your um, KPI. As, as your KPI to say, <laughs> well, this year we've had 70 versus 30% of planned versus unplanned because yeah. that has probably nothing to do with it really. Well, it? well, all data has its limitations, but we're certainly seeing an increase in plan code greys and suggesting that yeah. the team profile and the proactive preventative uh, message is certainly mm. uh, increasing. Yeah. And we are getting a lot of calls from people like around the hospital. So say last month we had 16 different clinical areas utilise code grey from mm. a code grey or a planned code grey yeah. response. So people are becoming more aware of escalating care. Like code grey isn't a dirty word. It's mm. about care yeah. and safety. And also people will call and let us know. So we might not even be a code grey, which is great. And we don't capture that work yet, yeah. but we will get called to help out if something's happening or mm. to swing by medical imaging because there could be a risk, yeah. you know. The front desk might notice someone pacing yeah. um, or on a phone call that sounds escalated and whilst they're no immediate threat or that's what it's observed to be, we might come and sort of risk assess, do we need to intervene, do we not, do we know this person, is there a risk to the person, the staff and mm. others, yep. And yep. can we help them get somewhere where they might need to be, you come into the hospital and we got lost coming up here and we work in the hospital. <laughs> yeah, don't we take help. it personally. Everyone gets lost coming up here, that's fine. <laughs> so we might need to help them, like, navigate the hospital. Yeah. And, 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 and even, even literacy. So we assume that you can read the sign, uh, interpret the sign, yeah. cognitively take in Main Street and how to navigate yourself around the place. So... Yeah, we've worked really hard with the reception desk and specialist clinics admin staff to sort of early recognise those families that might need extra support. Mm. Even things like changing clinic times, prioritising families that might have uh, other commitments, other children. You know, everyone's got a story behind this place. So yeah. picking up kids from school. And um, being flexible where we can. I think sometimes by being flexible, that's de-escalating in itself, mm. even if we're not being flexible to where they need us to be. But what flexibility can we offer to see them as the individual, not as like the next person yeah. on the list? I wonder whether some retail places need to have code grades, <laughs> like planned code grades and things like that in their departments. They, um, I reckon they might. When it comes to, uh, to unplanned code grades, how do these work? Who actually attends these? Yeah, so our unplanned and planned code grades have a clinical lead. So one of us is a code grey coordinator. So we're all registered nurses as a clinical nurse consultant. Or if it's the hours that we're not working, the hospital manager will attend. Yeah. The after hours hospital manager. We have three ward responders. So we have a person from our Kelpie unit, which is our adolescent unit, our sugar glider ward, which is a medical ward, and our cockatoo ward, which is a neurosurge ward. Right. Cockatoo and Kelpie carry a backpack. Mm -hmm. with sensory toys, medications, and anything we might need wherever we are. And we also have two security guards. One of them is the team leader as well. Yeah. All of our team are trained in our OVA training, so our MOCA training, which is a Melbourne Health um, training package. Yeah. And they're all responsive to the codes. So they'll come to planned and unplanned codes, as well as the people around 
are in that unit or in that area, we normally will have a couple of people from there as well. Okay. So the same team respond to both. The response is exactly the same for both codes. Whether it's planned or unplanned. Yeah. 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 And in the context of managing a patient and noticing behavioural changes, dare I ask, what is the threshold for calling an unplanned code grey? I don't think there is a threshold. I think if it's around being unsafe, Mm. and that can include passive aggression, so eye-rolling, sarcastic comments and things like that, it can um, be aggression in the moment, so yelling, swearing, threatening, throwing things, hitting themselves, Mm. things like Mm. that. Um, I guess it's around safety, and everyone has a different level of feeling safe, but it's if we look at it from an escalating care, do we need more support to manage this situation safely? So I guess if you think that anyone involved Mm -hmm. is unsafe in whatever way, whether it's a patient, whether it's a parent, whether it's a healthcare worker, the code grade gets called. If you're thinking about it, it's a good time to call it. Yeah, yeah. You're better to, I guess you're better to call it than to not call it, right? And you can't get in trouble for calling a code grade. Anyone, like any staff member can escalate care through a code grade. Yeah. So up until now, we've talked about code grays when they relate to the patient, but obviously in a pediatric hospital, we have a unique situation where we have a lot of parents um, and carers that are around and code grays can sometimes be the result of their escalating behavior, not the pa- not the patient's escalating behavior. Is there anything different that happens in these situations? Yes. I think it's more of a security and clinical lead presence in managing it and it would usually require further follow-up from directors and nums in terms of how we move through it. Mm. I think there's so many variables in every situation and like 30 at least pop to mind when you think about it, like what example and what pops up, but it's around safety and how do we keep this situation safe right now Yeah, um, and support. So we know that a lot of our codes are a result of something that's gone wrong in communication. So how can we figure that out, but also place boundaries on expected behaviours. Yeah and ensure that we can work together. Because at the end of the day, everybody, the parents, family, carers, and staff are here to help the child. Yeah. yeah that's our core business. Yeah. That's usually the family's core business too. Yeah. So making sure that that's at the centre of how we work. Yeah, and the ward responders would usually disengage for fairly quickly if it was a parent, visitor, or adult, although they might, for example, help support the child whilst the parent's escalated. So they might be instructed by the clinical lead to take on that role to make sure, you know, ensure that the child's safety whilst the clinical lead and or security make a plan with the adult or visitor. There are times where after our risk assessment, it's deemed that we require further help or escalation. And that might be the use of VicPol community mental health crisis teams Mm. for parents. And that's certainly something in our assessment of the situation that we, that we might choose to do. In terms of what we get called for, we are mostly, most of our codes are on pediatrics. So that was my next question. Yeah. What is the percentage or I would a, say about percentage? 95% on patients and young, like children and adolescents, so, so our patients, and about 5% on parents, carers, other. That's astonishing. I would have thought it was much higher for adults. Mm. Certainly the ones that we hear, we're just like, oh, yeah, some parent is nah, you know, yeah, not happy or whatever. But And to add to that, we do collect the age of 
well, we call it the aggressor, but it's we not don't normally ask the parents or yeah. the carers so. what, what their age is. Yeah, that <laughs> yeah. might not make them happy. That, I know that might cause another code gray. <laughs> yeah. I actually did a snap poll of some of my colleagues um, in imaging about what they thought the percentage was between the patients and the the carers. They all thought the same as me. They yep. all thought it was like. 70, 30 or 60, 40 or something like that. So that's actually a really surprising number. Absolutely. It, it may also represent we do deliver bad news in the hospital. We do things to children that aren't always pleasant. And of course, we do our best to do them in a manner that's you know less restrictive, pain-free. Mm. But the reality is that there might be a, a little bit of a level of acceptable behaviour of parents' distress that we might may or may not sit with. An example is, you know, oh, well, they're going through a really hard time so I can understand why dad's yelling or we've just told them that their child's got a, a you know, a life-limiting disease so I can understand mm. why they're not making eye contact with mm. anybody for four days and demanding certain things. So, yeah, yeah we have to work through and, and see what's acceptable and, and what's not. Yeah, and I think it's also giving staff permission to see it as unacceptable. Um, to be able to escalate it. I think that's tricky when you're there to provide care for the child because mm. that's why we all got into paediatrics yeah. as well. Yeah. And so it can be really hard because everyone's got really good intentions. Yeah. yeah. And you like to think the best of families. You like to Absolutely. work with children. That's why we're here. Um, those who work in paediatrics, um, you know, did it because, you know, they love the, the babies and the children and working with families and making a terrible time a little less terrible. Yeah. And so when you're then faced with violence and aggression, it's a difficult to, it can be difficult to identify and even more difficult to call out when you've got to go back in that room and deliver care to that child and family. So yeah. that can cause a bit of a delay in identifying, setting boundaries. And some parents uh, aren't even aware that their mm. that their behaviour is... Uh, perhaps not in line with what we would expect uh, in the hospital. Yeah, I think that's a big one, isn't it? Like what we expect versus other people's life experiences are going to be different. Yeah, that's yeah, absolutely, work. yeah. So what are we telling them about how we work and how we operate and what's helpful? Mm. Like what to expect from us and what can we expect from them? Yeah. How do we create that collaboration and that partnership of all of us against the illness, the presenting problem, yeah. the diagnosis? Yeah. And I think that that can be really powerful yeah. when and we set, kind of and separate it. And as Chrissy said, setting expectations early sets them up for a boundary, which yeah. is, you know, people in stressful situations do need. It's so containing. Containing. When you yeah. feel out of control coming into a hospital. Yeah, absolutely. I do want to touch on one other aspect, and that's the code black. Can you tell me what this is about? Yeah, so that's weapon or weapon-like. So what do you mean a weapon like? So it could be an assumption that someone has a weapon or someone's using an object as a weapon right. um, or the aggression is too significant for us to be able to safely intervene and assist. So a teaspoon could be a weapon? It can be. Right. Absolutely. Yep. We have a range of different things that have been used as weapons um, and this can be in response to someone trying to elicit their own sense of safety. Yeah. Um, because that's how they've learned to protect themselves. Or it could be um, with malice or intent to want to hurt other people, which is really tricky. A code black is when we all retreat, though. That's a police-led response. So security take over the situation mm. when a code black is called. 
and we all retreat because at the end of the day, no one comes to work to get hurt and we all need to go home at the end. Like yeah, staff absolutely. need to be able to go home. So it's a police-led response, but security, secure the area and um, make sure no one else can get into that space to get hurt. Yeah. And th- the other point is then what does the rest of the hospital do? So if you hear a code black being called, yeah. what should you do if you're in the hospital? Do not go to it. <laughs> That's a good point. Stay away. So you are to retreat until it's stood down. Okay. Going to the area increases risk because there's more people, which means more people are at risk. Okay. Another situation, code grey on the run. Yeah. So that's when the um, aggressor or the person that the code's been called on is moving away from where they were originally. Mm-hmm. Um, so they might be trying to leave the hospital or go hide or they might be in that flight part of that fight, flight, freeze and trying to get out of the space. So it's to indicate that it's moving, which might, which would change in our minds where we might enter from to get mm. to that um, situation to assist. And as far as the staff is concerned, mm-hmm. what should they do if they hear? I mean, a code black in one area is fine because it's mm-hmm. easy to just go, we just won't go to that area. Yep. But if it's a code black on the run... Code grey on the run? No, black. Oh, code black on the run. Yeah. It'd be rare to hear code black on the run. However, our current procedure, a code black could be called as contained, right? which does not get called overhead. So it's paged to the response, those who respond to it, uh, security. If a situation is deemed uncontained, the code black will be called overhead as code black uncontained. Right. So- Yes, I guess if you're unfamiliar with that term, it can be a little alarming and lots of people then go and Google what the code is and then they find out. And they see Grey's Anatomy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess firstly reassure you that, you know, security have been working in the hospital. Most of the security guards have been working in the building a very long time. They've got fine-tuned, you know, dynamic risk assessment skills um, with, you know, the security licence. They've got advanced CCTV and they're very familiar with the facilities and the geography of the hospital. Hospital, So they're on to things pretty quickly. And we've got a great relationship with the local police and a code black gets called uh, as a triple O response. And then once triple O receive the type of uh, scenario, they'll dispatch what they deem necessary with the information that they have. So Sometimes it might be a couple of police or sometimes it might be multiple teams come to give us, give us a hand. You would follow race principles like you would for mm. any other emergency management situation. Mm. Yep. Stay away. Absolutely. <laughs> sure. And at the end of the day, it's just around safety. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Christy and Kathy, thank you for taking the time to come and talk to me about this today. Uh, for our listeners out there, can you give a couple of a last minute tips that they can use to manage the changing behaviours of children in hospital? Yep. I think one of the things that we didn't really talk about what is really important is our nonverbal communication. So what we're not saying. Mm-hmm. So how are we showing like safety in our body language? So through our eye contact, through our smiles, through our, you know, open stance and things like that can be really helpful. So not being judgmental in how that looks. Mm. ESP is something that we talk about a lot and that's environment self and patient person awareness. So we all have different environments that we work in and they all have different risks. Yeah. So thinking about your exits, what you've got in the room, do you need 10 chairs? 
in this room mm. for two people. Mm. Are there things around that could be seen as unsafe? Other patients, noises and things like that. Where you're at as an individual, so are you on day seven of seven shifts in a row? Mm. You know, are you coming up to your holidays? So thinking about where you're at and what you're capable of managing because that's trickier to see sometimes. Yeah. So being able to identify if you're not the best person to work with that family today because you're running on empty, that yeah. shows really good insight. And patient per- person awareness. So what are they trying to communicate through their behaviour? What do we know about them? Mm-hmm. So yes, they might have a history of code greys, but context. Is it when they need to come into hospital that they get distressed? So how can we help them with that? Yeah. So you know, yes, they've got history of aggression, but what else can we do? Yeah. What's the context around it and what are the things like that we can help support them with that on? Mm-hmm. So those things are really important in every area in the organisation will have a different ESP experience and case that would come to mind. Yeah. So I think thinking about your environment is something we have control over too. So that's just mitigation of risk already. Yeah. Um, mine would be... If you feel uncomfortable, call it out. So remove yourself from the situation, give us a call or initiate a code grey. If it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't right. Mm. When you're communicating or you're faced with a scenario, think about a little acronym HHH, so um, heart, head, heart. An example of this is you can't speak to me like that. I'm, I'm at work and I don't deserve to be spoken to like that. All absolutely a valid message to somebody. However, thinking about, I can see you're really upset. I really want to work with you to, to get to a solution. However, when you're yelling at me, that's really hard. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go away and I'm going to come back in five minutes and I really want to help, help you work this out. Mm. And then hopefully that person can de-escalate themselves, which is ideal. We're talking about it, perhaps an adult here. Um, and going back with, I'm really glad we could work together mm. um, so we could, you know, continue to care for Johnny. Yeah. So, yeah, thinking about our messaging and when we're distressed, removing ourselves if we're, if we're in danger, but thinking about, yeah, heart, head, heart messaging in our communication. And I think that's also really important from a repair perspective too. When people experience code grays and things like that, there's a lot of shame, embarrassment, remorse, guilt, and how we can repair to work towards continuing to provide care. So what's helpful? You know, is it helpful if I ask you how you're feeling out of 10 and you give me a number, which means that you're struggling? Mm. So using it as an opportunity to help create a better experience next time can be really great. And we do see it work really effectively with our young people that come in and might be more well acquainted with our team. Mm. And they will know what's what to expect from us too, which can be helpful. And they get a say in how to be supported when they are dysregulated and upset. And we want our building to be safe for the staff who work here, those who visit us and those we care for. Excellent. Thanks again to both of you for chatting with me. I'm sure this has helped people feel a lot more comfortable in managing these behaviours. I think at the end of the day, by the sounds of it, it comes down to a lot about two words, safety and communication. Absolutely. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you for having us. No worries. Thanks for listening to Conversation with the Experts, part of the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast series. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, check out our other podcast show, Teach, Think, Treat, where we discuss aspects related to teaching and learning in a busy clinical setting.